0: Typically, when there's a marriage celebration about to take place, you'll get in the mail a card that says, Save the date. We're going to talk about marriage, um, the great wedding of the Scriptures this morning. The problem with that is that we don't know what date to put on our calendar for this event. Now, together we have traveled along Route 66, noticing that as we read from Genesis to Revelation a year ago, that all of the signs were pointing us to Jesus. Every page seemed to breathe his name. We looked at the portraits and the principles and the promises. Each one was speaking of him for whom our souls long. And then we opened the Gospels and we marveled at his works and his words as he walked among us. And we sat and shared amazement at the authority with which he taught as just recently we listened to him in his Sermon on the Mount message and now for the next eight weeks we will seek to understand what he is asking of his church. What is she to believe? How is she to behave? And what will give her strength to endure in the days of waiting for the return of his glorious kingdom? You see what Christ thinks of the church is a question that should concern all of those who claim to follow him. We are often quite free to express our opinion of what the church ought to be and how the church ought to behave. But the greater question which we must be concerned is, what does Jesus think of his church? This is an urgent series of messages for us to receive because Faith Bible Church, like every other Bible teaching church, is only one generation away from extinction. So over the next eight weeks, four young preachers will lead us through a study of the seven letters which Jesus wrote for and sent to seven churches in Asia. Pastor Brad, Pastor Nat Crawford, Pastor Chris Weiniger from Norfolk, and one of our elders, Dimitri, will help us gain insight into what Jesus thinks of his church by guiding us through Revelation 2 and 3. You should be feeling sorry for those men right now because I'm setting up their message. The men will be helping us understand how we the church, the bride of Christ, are to be faithful while we're waiting. We will answer the question, what we are to believe, how we are to behave, and how do we persevere and endure in this season of waiting. This morning to set the table for this summer of seven, we will look at the opening chapter of the last book in your Bible. It is the beginning of what many consider a most intimidating book. Those who begin to read it step into a strange and unfamiliar world of angels and demons, of lambs and lions and horses and dragons. Seals are broken and trumpets blown. The content of seven bowls are poured out on the earth. Two malicious monsters appear, one emerging from the sea with its ten horns and its seven heads, and the other rising from the earth with a lamb's horn and a dragon's voice. There's thunder and lightning and hail and fire and blood and smoke. At first read, it seems like a book of chaos and weird, mysterious visions. But it is God's word on what will take place in the very near future. It reminds us that in all situations and at all times, Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He will be ultimate victor over Satan and all forces of evil. He will one day restore what was ruined by the fall. He secured this authority by his powerful and glorious resurrection from the dead. It's a reminder that regardless of what tests or trials have come, may come, the final outcome is this. We know that all these things ultimately lead to Christ's eternal kingdom. So no matter the cost, follow him. Exchange your worldly comforts for the riches of his eternal kingdom. For through Christ Jesus, the world will once again become that glorious paradise as it once was in the beginning. When you read the book of Revelation, there are three principles to keep in mind. Principle number one, it is a book that must be read, heard, and obeyed. It is primarily a book to be heard. They didn't have a kinkos on every corner. When it was written, there was one copy. Those who would receive it, can you imagine reading the 22 chapters of Revelation without a copy in front of you to guide your thinking? You need to listen carefully. There's a blessing pronounced, we'll read it together. There's a blessing pronounced for the public reader of the letter, and then for the hearers, but only if all of them are obedient. Only that will lead to God's promised blessing. The second principle is this. This is a specific revelation of God, a revealing of a mystery otherwise unknowable, apart from God initiating the communication. And the theme of it is the wonder of His Son, who is our Savior. So while the smoke rises and the lightning flashes and the thunder roars, don't forget the focal point revelation is Jesus the Christ and third this is the promise that what God is doing to restore his broken world he will perform through his church so he begins the first three chapters with a message to the churches now you've got your Bible open Revelation chapter 1 going to read all 20 verses the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that would soon take place. He he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, the theme of the book, even to all he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John To the seven churches, the first readers and hearers of this, that are of Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, the theme of the book, was on the Isle of Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Send it to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and finally to Laodicea. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, a statement that appears 365 times in the Scripture, one for every day. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and the grave. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Much of chapter 1 is going to remain here in the text, but over the next eight weeks, I trust that my young brothers will help you gain greater insight, understanding, and appreciation for the richness of that. A couple of things to point out to you is the constant repetition of the number 7, which takes on significance as you read the book of Revelation. It's the the number of completion or perfection. You see it in verse 4, the seven churches. You see it, again, of the seven spirits. You see it in verse 11, again, to the seven churches. You see it in verse 12, the seven golden lampstands. You see it in verse 16. the right hand, He held the seven stars. You see it again, down in verse 20. It says, as to the mystery of the seven stars, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the seven churches, the seven lampstands, the seven churches that ought to elevate our curiosity a bit and say what what is the significance of those? That's the series theme for the next few. A, a couple of other things to point out is that what you read in the book of Revelation was not only heard by John but it was actually a visual aid. It was seen by John. He, he interpreted uh, what he saw in his generation that God is projecting forward uh, over and over, so as you're reading it, you have to to read it and say, if you had never seen this before, you advance it a couple of thousand years, how would you describe the things that are before you? Just little suggestions that maybe many of you want to read this book, and you ought to read it out loud, as they always say, if you want to hear the voice of God audibly, just read your Bible out loud, and then obey it because if you do those three things he promises you that he will bless you the word simply means make you ultimately happy your life will be satisfied it's a scary book to read but I encourage you to consider it I want you to notice as you're reading through it the number of times that he refers to the lamb the one that we worshiped and celebrated in the Lord's Supper 29 different times he refers to the lamb as the focal point, Jesus is the theme, but he is best known in Revelation as the lamb who was sacrificed, buried, and raised again. The other thing to look for as you're reading the book of Revelation is the number of times that you see the word throne. You see, the big question that we have just come through in our nation, and as you study the movements around the world, you ask yourself the question, who is the final authority? Who is ultimately in charge? Whose voice is the final voice? Who rules and who reigns? And as you go through Revelation, even though the world around us is as chaotic as it possibly can get, it seems, Revelation reminds us that there is a throne upon which there sits a king who rules, And ultimately, every king on earth will bow before that king. So don't get all stressed out over world circumstances today. They're they're transitional only. They're transitory at best. Ultimately, Christ will rule and everyone who is a threat to you or an encouragement to you, depending on which side of the political spectrum you fall. the, The bottom line is they will all bow themselves to the king of kings and the lord of lords. So more than 40 times in the book of Revelation, he will reference the throne and he who sits upon it. Now, as you go through the New Testament, there are a number of metaphors or portraits given for the church. The next eight weeks, we're focusing on what does Jesus think of the church? What does he want from the church? What does he tell the church that she is to believe or not to believe? Each of the four young men that will be preaching will address that and try to answer that question. In this particular portion of his letter, what does he tell us to believe and what not to believe? How does he want us to behave and not to behave? And the third thing that's going to come up over and over is, in the midst of the waiting, this long drawn out period, it's been 2,000 years since he promised to return, how do we persevere? How do we endure? What's the secret to unwavering hope? In the New Testament, you'll find the church is referred to as the body of Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are growing to maturity by that which each joint supplies to the functioning of the body. We also find out that it is a building. We are living stones being placed together. Sometimes he has to chip off a little edge or two. The thing that stayed in my mind when we were in Israel 20 years ago now, but that the temple was assembled by stones that were quarried outside the city. They weren't allowed to have any sound of a hammer or a chisel echoing in the city as they constructed the temple. They cut all the stones. And our guide said that they had to be cut so finely that you could not slip your little finger between them. They were finely. He takes that that image of the temple that that was the glorious representation of God amongst His people, and he says in Peter that we are being put together as living stones. And the problem is. We don't want to fit together that tightly. We want a little distance. You're entering into my zone, my sphere. You're penetrating my space. But to get us to fit together, sometimes He has to file us off. He has to chip off the rough edges. We're building on a foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles are the truths upon which we build. And We're also, as we would call it, a brigade We are a military force. We are not called to follow Jesus to a Sunday school picnic. But he has called us to be soldiers on his behalf. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Against the evil forces of darkness. So he picks that up in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. He says, I want you you to stand firm together. Locking you as it were, your shields. The Roman shield had had a groove and inversion, so that each of the soldiers, if he would click his shield to the guys on the right and the left of him, they would create a wall. And by that movement of the wall, they could take the territory. We are a brigade. We are a fighting force for truth. But the one theme that starts in the Old Testament and laces all the way through the New Testament is: we are a bride. We are his bride. So I wrote it this way. To understand the Bible and to properly understand these opening few chapters of Revelation, one must pause to comprehend the biblical portrait of marriage as it is unfolding for us throughout the Scriptures. Our story began with a private wedding in a perfect garden, Genesis chapter 2. In the middle of your Bible, there is an entire book devoted to the mystery and wonder of the marriage relationship. Eight poetic chapters of the Song of Songs. And finally, the story finds its ending with a grand wedding with thousands of wedding guests as they gather in a glorious restored paradise. Revelation 19. The biblical portrait of marriage and the Jewish tradition of betrothal and celebration are most informative for our reading of this great book. The practices of those days were far different than the way we do things today. One significant difference is this. The focal point of attention for a wedding was not, as we do it today, on the bride, but rather on the bridegroom. It was he who was celebrated and cheered, and then he would put the spotlight upon his bride. A testimony of how blessed he was and how beautiful she was. So, Just a side note. Because God has chosen the marriage relationship from Genesis to Revelation as a portrait and description of his faithful love for us, we shall not be surprised by the fact that Satan has chosen in our generation to boldly attack that very institution. His first act of temptation was to bring division between the husband and the wife in Genesis chapter 3. And it continues today. So it is, it's the work of the adversary. We, we're wrestling against principalities and powers of darkness and this is not a political statement, but the, the whole movement internationally to, to try to, to redefine sexuality and moral standards and thank goodness that, you know, when it came to the UN, it was, can you believe it? nations like Russia and Iran that stood in the way, and not America and the European Union? Why are we surprised that our children are confused about what the biblical picture of marriage really is? Why is it that we as churches have to write a definition of marriage is in our doctrinal statement? It's because Satan will do everything he can to twist and pervert that glorious picture. We are one generation away from extinction at Faith Bible Church if we do not effectively ground the next generation in the unchanging truths of the Scripture. And quite honestly, this is Pride Month. Everywhere you look, you're going to see an attempt to hijack The image that God established as a reminder that in His love for us, He would no longer wipe mankind out with a flood. And so they have taken God's promise that for the very sin that they use it to represent and to to express their liberation. And so what they are doing for us all through the month of June is plastering reminders everywhere that were it not for the grace of God... He would look upon the intent of every human heart, and its intent is to do evil continually. And were it not for the promise that he made to himself, he would wipe us all out. He asks the question, how long can I endure what's going on around here? As long as the rainbow remains in the sky. God. Sometimes I look at a double rainbow, I try to take pictures of him in my iPhone 8 just doesn't do it justice, but it's kind of like God has to put two up there because he's looking down going, I'm going to take them out, and then he goes to the second one and goes, well, maybe not, I promise not to. So rather than get all upset about the fact that they are plastering God's reminder everywhere, look upon it as his amazing grace. Now the question is, why has God endured what he has endured in the world that we're in today? And I think the answer is as simple as this. There are yet those souls who have not yet come to know faith in Jesus Christ. They're not ready for the end to come. So the urgency of the church to take the gospel to lost people is greater than it's ever been. So every time you want to get offended by a rainbow, remind yourself that that is nothing but the extended grace of God. But don't squander the day without telling someone of the wonderful hope that we have in Him And please don't put an extra quarter in the offering slot for that little sermonette. That's not even in my notes. Revelation chapter 1 is a description of the bridegroom. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is a description of what the bridegroom expects from his bride. In chapter 2 and 3, he declares compliments of her, expresses concerns for her, gives instruction for corrections of her, but ultimately declares his commitment to her. So that's what the four brothers will unpack for us in the weeks that are ahead. This morning we look at chapter 1. He describes the perfect bridegroom. As I said, in their culture, it was the bridegroom who was the focal point of the celebration. It's the bridegroom's task to shift the spotlight then to the beauty of his bride. When you read the Song of Songs, and most people get about as confused there as they do in the book of Revelation, what you want to notice in reading that is, again, you've got a wedding in the beginning, and you've got a wedding in the end, and if you split your Bible right in the middle, you've got the Song of Songs, and there's this whole, he's got only 66 books to tell us everything we need to know in order to be the people of God, and he spends one entire book talking about the marriage relationship. Notice how they complement each other on their external beauty and their character, beauty, inside and outside, over and over. Can you describe to us what your beloved is like? And they start with this external expression and they move to the character of the heart. So we see it here. Revelation chapter 1, who is this bridegroom? Who is this one that our heart longs for? What is our beloved really like? In verses 5 and 6, he describes it in detail. Grace to him, peace From Him who was and is and is to come. To Him who loves us, freed us from our sins by His blood, made us a kingdom, priest to His God, Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is and was and is to come He is the Almighty. I just summarized it. There are seven expressions of the beauty of the bridegroom. Number one, He is the faithful witness. The word witness means martyr. He is the one who on the foundation of His testimony was willing to suffer death because of that truth. He is the faithful witness. Secondly, He is the firstborn from the dead. We were reading that together Thursday in Bible study in the book of Colossians. He picks it up the same thing. The fact is that he is the firstborn from the dead is the promise that others will also be raised from the dead. He is the one that has has defeated the power. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that man's last great enemy is the grave, but the grave does not get the last word because he is the firstborn from the dead. He is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. We've already said that. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the word Lord, which means that he is king, he is sovereign, he is the divine over all. Most people will bow before him with their arm twisted behind their back. But those who have come to know him will bow before him in great joy and delight. He is the king over all the kings of the earth. That's why we need to keep our enthusiasm under control. So we, we often put our hope in politicians and political movements and laws and those things. We are the salt of the earth. We need to be rubbed into the decaying culture and we need to seize every opportunity to stand in the way of the direction that things are going. We are the light that penetrates an in increasing darkness. But our ultimate confidence is in the one who sits on the throne above it all. I, th- I think I'll just leave it there. Number four, he is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the, that's the, the, the A to Z of the alphabet. It's, you go to either extreme of the, of the Greek alphabet and, and there he is. He is all of those things. He is the eternal one. That's what it means by He is today, and then He was, and He is to come. I'm looking forward to the book of Hebrews. Your Questions probably, so if these four young guys are going to be doing the preaching, what are you going to be doing? Well, next week I'm going to be teaching the Old Testament survey class. Looking forward to following up with Daryl, who will be teaching there this morning. Mostly I'm going to be immersing my mind in the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews, it will tell us that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It seems to me that the book of Hebrews is the ultimate. Uh, on, our, on the series we started last year on uh, uh, Route 66, Genesis to Revelation, every sign points to Jesus. And then we saw Jesus walking among us in the Gospels, and we heard Him teach with authority. In the, in the book of Acts, He has sent out His Holy Spirit looking for a bride for the bridegroom. And then the book of Hebrews will take what we saw in the Old Testament and lace it together with what we understand from the Gospels in the New, and together we will see that Jesus is all we need. We're going to do it under the question of, is Jesus enough? But I think I'm going to just tip my hand and say, Jesus is, in fact, all we need. He is the Eternal One. And He is also, he says here, He is the Almighty. That means there is none greater than him, there is none more powerful than him, there is none who has ultimate authority over him. He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is the living God of history. He is the God of eternity. He is, that's our bridegroom, the one that loves us, and he is ultimately the coming triumphant one. What Revelation celebrates is that in the midst of the battle, there is an outcome that is already predictable, and that is ultimately, when the battles are over, Jesus Christ will, he will stand as victorious overall. He's the triumphant one. That's our groom. Now to appreciate how he sets up the messages for the next eight weeks, we need to reflect back on what a Jewish wedding looked like. It's called a betrothal. I'll just highlight it. The father of the groom would seek the approval of the father of the bride of choice. The fathers were involved in the process. An appropriate gift or dowry was agreed upon and was to be given to the father of the bride-to-be. There would be a betrothal celebration that would take place in the living room in the home of the bride. There would be an unbreakable commitment made with the pronouncement of a blessing. When the betrothal takes place, we would call it an engagement. But an engagement, you can just simply get in a spat and send the ring back or go to the pawn shop and get the money for the ring and end it. But in a betrothal, once this celebration has taken place, they are considered to be married. They are not living yet together. But in order to end this agreement, there had to be a legal law of divorce. A ring then is placed upon the finger of the bride as a statement of commitment and a promise. Then a period of no less than 12 months will separate this engagement event from the wedding celebration. During that 12 months, the bride is spending her time preparing herself for the day of her marriage, getting her garments all prepared but also all of the items that she's going to need to set up housekeeping on her own. The groom is not just passively biding the time but he has gone back to his father's home and there he is preparing a special place into which he will bring his bride. They don't go out and shop around looking for an apartment that's affordable and all that But basically, they would either go to the family estate and they would build a cottage for themselves and their bride on that, or most likely they would just simply build a lean-to room onto the father's house and it would just expand it outward. That's what he spent his year doing. There were no save-the-date calendars, but when the father had inspected and approved his son's groom preparation, the wedding procession will begin. Typically, it would take place early in the evening after a long day of work. The friends of the groom would join him as they form a parade from his home to that of the brides. As they enter the street where she lives, a trumpet announcing their coming will sound, thus, letting her and her bridesmaids know that this is the day. This is the day we save the date for. All of his buddies would be traveling with him and all the people on the streets would joyously shout as the wedding party would fill the streets with their joy. This warning would motivate the bride and her bridesmaids to quickly complete their final preparations. And then the groom would embrace his bride and the combined parties of the bridesmaids friends and the grooms friends would travel back together to the father's house. Where there would be feasting and dancing and a celebration that would last for as much as seven days. So significant is this in the story of the scripture that it is not by accident that Jesus' first miracle, his first public declaration that he is in fact the sovereign God was at the marriage supper at the wedding of Cana. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a story of a royal prince who stepped down from his throne laid aside his robe and his crown, and made himself like the most common of his people. It is a story about his diligently seeking his dearly loved bride. So, how does this apply to Revelation chapter 1? Like Abraham, who sent his trusted servant to seek out a bride for Isaac, so our Heavenly Father has sent his Holy Spirit out to seek a bride for his son. That's the story of the book of Acts and the letters to the churches. The dowry or the ransom price that would be exchanged was the shed blood of the bridegroom. The ring of commitment was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. We have been sealed in him by the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The groom has returned to his father's house. To prepare his bride a place. John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll receive you to myself. So that where I am, there you may also. His bride is preparing herself for the day of her wedding. Ephesians chapter 5. That he is washing her with the water of the word so that on that day he might present to himself his bride in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. It is with great expectation and anticipation we wait for the day of the glorious event. On that day, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet will sound and the voice of the archangel will cry, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are caught, or alive will be caught up together with them to meet the cloud, the Lord in the cloud. And so we'll always be together with the Lord. When we hear the trumpet and the shouts of the joyous party, we will suddenly be swept into the arms of our loving bridegroom. And he will proudly lead us to the home he has prepared for us. So the story leads us to revelation 19 hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it's to that that we have devoted the next eight weeks of our study how do we the bride prepare ourselves for the bridegroom It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What is his bride to believe? How is she to behave? And how is she to endure in the long season of her waiting? He will proudly lead us to the home he has prepared. And we will live happily ever after. Revelation 7, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen, amen, you're dismissed.